Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. Um, if you're joining us online this morning, thank you for prioritizing gathering with the body um, to do so digitally during these days, the pandemic. And so we're so thankful for you joining us. And uh, I hope that you will be opening to 1 Corinthians 15 also. I remember when I was a freshman in college. Showed up on the campus of Louisiana College, which is my alma mater, and enjoying all of the aspects of, of student life and of the social aspect, really enjoying getting to know professors and all these things and just all the joys that come with being a freshman in college, 18 years old, but also being very naive not realizing a lot of the things. In fact, I was reminiscing yesterday with a friend about you know, all the dumb things that we do during the college years. When you just feel invincible, you take risks that you wouldn't normally take you know, when you're thinking about things and stuff like this. Well, one of those naive moments for me was one day when I was entering the cafeteria. And I'll just say, you know, I, I, there wasn't a, um, a lot of, of like training that went on in my life um, about finances and about the, the dangers of credit cards and things like that. So I'm walking into the cafeteria one day and there's a table set up and they're giving away all of this free stuff, Terry. I mean, like t-shirts and, and, and water bottles and all these things. And so they stop and they say, Hey, you know, like, are, are you new on campus? Yeah. Well, man, I would love to give you a t-shirt and some water bottles, stuff like that. All you have to do is just, you know, just fill this out. Okay. What is this? Oh, this is for a credit card. Everybody needs one. You never know when there might be an emergency, something like that. You just you ought to go ahead and do this. Oh, okay. Well, so fill out the paperwork, get my free T-shirt, Stephen, my water bottle, you know, all this stuff. And, and then I go, and then a, about a week, I get something in the mail. It's this little piece of plastic. And, oh, credit card. Okay. So start going through life and then go to Walmart that first time and things in the checking account are getting pretty low. And I'm like, you know, but I'll, I'll get paid at the end of this week. And so, you know, I'll just, I'll just use the credit card. So do the credit card. And then before I know it, those numbers are starting to add up. And had I known how it all worked and the danger of, of using this credit card, especially without much income coming in, all of these things, if I, if I had fully understood what it was I was signing up for, I, would have, I probably would have done things a little bit differently in that moment. And there's a concern, I think, is that for some folks today in the church, that's how it was with the gospel. And really, that's not my concern. That was Paul's concern. 2,000 years ago, with a church in a city called Corinth that was a lot like New Orleans, if there's any city that we have a parallel kind of existence with, it would be the city of Corinth, a port city, a lot of people, lots of different cultures, kind of a melting pot of peoples, lots of religions, all of these things. Corinth would be a New Orleans kind of city. And Paul is now writing to them, and we're turning to kind of the end of the letter, but there's a lot going on in Corinth. He, he takes a lot of time to really deal with some of the specifics that are going on but then he gets to the end at this point, and, and it's like there's still a little bit of concern for him of this. Did you sign up for the gospel because of what you thought that it might just kind of give you? Free t-shirt, a water bottle? Did, did, did you really consider what it was to follow Jesus? Did, did you take a careful assessment? Because it's worth it. He's going to go on to make this very clear, 
But the way that they're living, the way that they're treating the gospel, the way that they're really dealing with this reality of Jesus is Lord over their life is not consistent. It's like they signed up for Jesus in a, on a whim. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And we're just going to read the first five verses of chapter 15. But I want that context in mind. That Paul's concerned about a people that, that maybe are kind of losing a grip on what he considers to be foundational. The most important reality of all. And he's going to say it by saying that this is of first importance. And so hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters... The gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you unless you believed in vain. That, that's that concern. Unless you didn't really understand what on earth you were doing in that moment. But then he moves into this central idea for I passed on to you as most important most important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that through the preaching of your word, as we return to what Paul says of, of what was of most importance, that there would be that realignment that needs to take, take place in life a lot. If I'm honest, Lord, before you, I need this, this adjustment on a daily basis to reorient myself again and again and again to what is most important and, and where you focus our hearts and lift our eyes is to the gospel, to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so realign us corporately today through your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Paul says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And then he lunges into the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to walk through the aspects that Paul lays down as the gospel. Now I'm concerned today that sometimes there's a misalignment. There's multiple meanings. When I say the word gospel, and then maybe I ask somebody else, you know, like, what would you say the gospel is? That we're talking about different things. Some people will say, you know, like the gospel is just that God loves everybody. Like that's, that's the gospel. But yet, is that what Paul says here of what was of first importance and what he passed on? And that's what we have to bring ourselves into alignment with is that when we say the word gospel that Paul uses here in verse 1, the gospel I preach to you, that we are really in alignment with what the word says the gospel is so that then as we go forward into New Orleans and all nations to bring the gospel, that we're bringing the gospel and not something else. So let's look at it and just walk through line by line what it is that Paul says is the gospel. First of all, it's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's one of the most theologically rich sentences in the Bible. 
And so let's take a moment to just go through each one of these words. Let's just start with Christ. Christ. This is referring to the person of Jesus. Now, you may have at some point thought that Jesus Christ is kind of like first, last name, so that if I walked in, I'm Chad Gilbert, I'm Jesus Christ. But that's off. Christ is better understood as, as a title or better as an office. Th- this office that was the office of king. In the Old Testament, this word Christ is, is the word Messiah. This one who was promised long ago who would come and would, would lead and would, and would set free the people of God. This promised king that when it was spoken of to David would have a rule and a reign that would never end. You see, when we talk about you know, an office, a, a good parallel until it breaks down is, is thinking about the pope and about the Catholic church. You have this office that then gets occupied. So you have Pope Francis. And so, the, that, so Pope is not his first name and Francis is last. Pope is the office. Christ is the office. But unlike the papacy, which changes every time one pope dies or on the rare occasion that one resigns from his office, it gets replaced by another person and another person. So the office just gets occupied like the presidency or something like that just keeps getting filled. But there is no other person who occupies the office of Messiah or king but Jesus. There wasn't a king, there wasn't a Messiah before him. There was only the coming Messiah, the one who would come, who would be the one whose kingdom would would rule and reign forever. The, The one who would bring righteousness and justice once and for all to his people, who would set them free, who would wipe away the tears from their eyes. All of these Old Testament promises finding their fulfillment in this one person, in this one office, Jesus Christ. And so when it says Christ, it's referring to King Jesus. But then look at the very next word of this one who was promised and anticipated and was coming and whose rule and reign would never end. Christ died. Christ died. I mean, how do we deal with this? I mean, doesn't, isn't this just a clear example of how the, the Bible contradicts itself? You had all these Old Testament promises that he would come and he would live forever and his rule and reign would never end and, and all of these things, and then he died? I mean, isn't death the end? I mean, isn't that how life concludes? That's what, that's what it would seem. But that is not the end of this story. Christ died, his death as king. Now, some might say, well, maybe he didn't become Christ or king until after the resurrection. Maybe he just died as a man. But that is not the biblical account of who he was. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Pilate, even at his his crucifixion, put a sign above him, you know, the king of the Jews, written in three different languages so that everybody could read it. And you say, well, that was just Pilate's assessment. There's a statement that he makes, I have written what I have written, that gives this divine backing to what Pilate has said that not even Pilate could get wrong. This is the king. This is the Messiah. 
And so there he is, the Messiah, on a cross. Rather than a golden crown, a crown of thorns. Dying. Who died. But notice it doesn't stop there. That Christ died. Why? For our sins. When you hear that, that Christ died for our sins, what do you do with that? Do you minimize it and think, well, not perfect, but certainly haven't done anything that would deserve a death penalty. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have to die for me. I haven't done anything deserving death. Do you dismiss it and think, how can one man die for all people? This, this is just silly thinking. This doesn't even make sense. Do you moralize it and think, wow, Jesus did that for me. I need to be a good person for others. Do you expect it and think, well, of course he did. God loves people. I mean, we're the most valuable thing in the world. So, of course, he did this for us. Do you disqualify yourself? Do you say, there's no way that he would do that for me if he knew what I've done? Do you balance it and say, well, if he did that for me, then I'm going to give my best to, to help pay him back for what he's done for me. I'm going to live an extremely good and generous and right life in order to balance the scales of what he did for me. Or do you humbly and desperately receive the death of Jesus Christ for your sins? Do you say that is what I needed more than anything else in this world. That you don't walk through and minimize it because you realize just how deeply you needed his salvation. You don't dismiss it, but you accept it. You don't moralize it because you realize that there's no moral good inside of you. Do you, you don't expect it because you know because you know that you shouldn't expect anything from God after what you've done. You don't disqualify yourself. Instead, you humbly accept that he qualified you by what he did for you. You see, that's the humility of the one who was a sinner, who wouldn't even look to God, who beat his chest and said, God, have, have mercy on, on, on me, a sinner. That's the sinner's prayer. That's the prayer of a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have good news for you. Christ died for your sins, for our sins. But what are the odds of this working out so perfectly? I mean, that, that Christ would be able to die for our sins and it would fulfill all of these things Look what it says. He died, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. Those promises that we talked about that substantiate Christ as the Messiah, those are all the promises that ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, the cross, the death of Jesus, was God's plan. It wasn't an accident. 
Jesus wasn't just caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time and then, you know, kind of a crowd mob and then, you know, just got sucked into something. It's like, wow, but man, thank goodness God made some good out of that bad situation. No, it was God's plan. This is why Jesus, sweating drops of blood, says, not my will, but yours be done, because this was the will of the Father. He made it clear to the disciples when they were with him, he said, we must now go to Jerusalem and, and there I'm going to be, I'm going to be arrested and, and, then, and then sentenced to death and I'm going to be crucified and then I'm going to be buried and then resurrected. He told them everything that was going to happen before it happened because he knew that that was the will of the Father. And the Old Testament for hundreds, even thousands of years had been telling that this would happen. Note the significance of that. That this was God's plan in order to save mankind. This was, this was not just something that in their day they came up with to be salvation. I mean, that's what we're tempted, right? We're just to say, well, gosh, 2,000 years ago, they were much more simple than we are today. Technology wasn't it is today. All of these things. And so, you know, they needed something to help make sense of, of their predicament. And so they came up with that as a solution. But, but today we're so much more advanced. We have better solutions, for all of our better solutions, are things better? For, for all of, of our ways of fixing us, are we fixed? Have, have we repaired all the damage done? The answer is no. The, the more that we try to construct a way to fix it, to fix the broken world, the worse that it becomes. Because what we're running from, what we're trying to fix, we don't have access to. I can't fix my heart. My heart deceives me. Your heart deceives you. Proverbs speaks so clearly of this, of the, of the heart above all things being deceptive. And so there is only one way for, for this sinful heart to be dealt with, and that was for Jesus to die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But then part two. He was buried. He was buried. When it says that, I find that many believers today just kind of skip past that part real fast. Like that it's just kind of this thing on the way. But I want you to think about the way that we do funerals today. I mean, have you ever been to a funeral where you went and you did the burial first, and then you came back to a memorial service or a funeral and then did the funeral? No, usually, I'm sure if I let, gave you a moment, somebody would raise their hand and would mess up this analogy altogether. But most of the time, there's the funeral and then the burial. And the burial is so significant to so many people because there is a sense of finality. Like, this is it. You know, when the, when, when the coffin begins to be lowered down in the grave or it's, or it's put into the crypt or, or whatever, that's a sense of like, this is it. That's where most people that have held it together maybe in the funeral services is at that moment of it being lowered down into the ground that then they, they just, they, they fall apart because this is it. This is the final, this is the final moment. And so get the significance of the burial of Jesus when you understand the significance that what he was doing was paying for your sin, it is done. Buried. Paid in full. 
It's over. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, it was over. Everything needed. There wasn't this reprisal. There wasn't this like, well, wait, you know, this curve. Nope. Done. Sin dealt with. It's over. And while we may not see that as much good news, what that means for you and I who the scriptures say are dead in our sins is good news. Because if I'm dead in my sins, then I want you to just consider for a moment that if I'm dead in my sins, that maybe it might be helpful to think about I'm dead and buried in my sins. Like I, I'm, I'm dead, dead. That's the kind of language that, that Paul uses. That, you know, that while we were dead, Christ died for us. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I was dead in my sins and transgressions, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead, dead and buried. And you say, well, Chad, you just mean like spiritually, like we were dead, not, not like physically. Just be careful when you make distinctions about the spiritual and physical. For some reason, we make the spiritual less significant than the physical. And so maybe it's just better to just say, you know, I was dead. I was dead rather than saying, well, at least I'm physically alive because that's very temporary. This life is but a breath. It's a, it's a flower here today, gone tomorrow. But, but this spiritual condition of death could be eternal. It could be eternal unless there's resurrection for you. And so we're, get the picture, we're dead in our sins, buried in our sins. And then Christ, in his rescue, doesn't just come down and appear in the sky. He doesn't just come down and then appear on the earth. He descends all the way into death. Get the picture. There's seven prisoners held in, a, in another nation. They're captive. They're, they're, they're being held there against their will. They're, they're, they are absolute filth and, and bondage. And so the United States Marines put together a plan to go in and to rescue them. Now, I want to ask you this question. If the Marines do this rescue mission, are the prisoners set free the moment that the Marines enter the nation where they're being held captive? No. Are the prisoners set free when the Marines are within a few miles of the prison? No. The prisoners will only be set free when the Marines go all the way down into the prison and set the captives free. It's only then and there that they are then rescued, hands laid on to then be brought out of the prison and to be liberated. Christ descended into death, into our spiritual death, into physical death in order to bring physical resurrection in order to bring spiritual life. He descended all the way down into death to rescue you and me. You see, the reality for us is that we often view the empty, I mean, the tomb of Jesus where he was buried from the outside looking in and saying, boy, I sure hope he comes out. Rather, than as one of the prisoners 
hoping day after day after day that someone will come in and rescue us. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has come into the tomb of death, of our spiritual death, in order to bring us out into life. It goes on that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, if he is not raised, then my preaching today is in vain. If he is not raised from the dead, then my faith and your faith is in vain. If, if he is not raised from the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied because we believe a lie about God and what he has done in order to save us. Uh, we're, we're to be absent. I mean, people should look on us and be like, that is just so sad. The reality is that a lot of people do look at us in that way and they say, how silly, how sad. But I wonder if it's not because we're, it's not that we're getting it wrong about the gospel, it's that we're not really living in the resurrected life. We've lost our grip on the gospel rather than clinging to it and bringing it to the world. Rather than, than realizing that, that now in Christ, he has commissioned us as his ambassadors to now go into the prisons and to set the captives free. To go there with the liberating gospel in order to bring it so that people can come out of the prisons. To be set free from the power of sin and death. Raised from the dead. You see, it wouldn't have meant much if, if the disciples, after Jesus' death and then his burial, they went to the tomb where there's this huge stone and they had labeled on it, you know, kind of chiseled on the stone, here lies a man who is victorious over sin and death. That wouldn't have meant much. It wouldn't have meant much just for them to say, wait, the tomb is empty, and then they run and they see an empty tomb, and then they extrapolate from an empty tomb all of this understanding about a resurrected Jesus. I mean, I, I give it to the intellectual who says, wait, an empty tomb does not necessitate a resurrection. There's a lot of other explanations for this. Uh, you can explain an empty tomb by somebody stole the body. Maybe the body was eaten. Maybe he was buried somebody somewhere else. I mean, like, there's a lot of other very reasonable explanations for an empty tomb. So, like, so isn't this kind of like jumping to conclusions here? But look what he says, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go and ask them. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. This is Paul talking now. It doesn't mean much to hear someone who is drunk say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. It means something to hear someone who's a recovering alcoholic who's sober say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. But it really packs a punch when someone who is sober says, I'm a recovering alcoholic when presented with their drink of choice. That's something. And the gospel that is being held out to you and me today, the gospel that was experienced by the early disciples was that of men who were dead, who experienced the resurrected Jesus and then were filled with his spirit in order to be set free, to live lives that change the world forever.
That packs a punch. When presented with other things, the things of this world, they turned away and said, we were saved by grace. We were saved by grace. And then every time, every time they would come together, they would remember that they were saved by grace. When they would take of the bread and they would drink of the cup, they would proclaim his death on the cross for them every time they would gather, never losing sight of the gospel by taking of the bread and taking of the cup, not because they were ritualistic, not because they just liked really good habits, but because this was central to who they were, or more precisely said, what this symbolizes was central to who they were. Because the bread represents his body given for them, crucified for them. His blood, the cup represents his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of their sins. Which started, which inaugurated a new covenant, a new promise between God and man. You see, earlier in 1 Corinthians, he says it this way, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. You see that same language that we saw in chapter 15? For what I received, I passed on to you. He's saying it again. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. I'm going to invite you to peel back this layer on top where the bread is. And take that piece of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we recognize this symbolizes his body and we take it remembering, remembering his sacrifice, take and eat in remembrance of him. And then I invite you to peel back this layer on top of the cup. And the word continues, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we take, remembering that this symbolizes his blood in a new covenant, and we do so in remembrance of him. And then listen to these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If I could take you back over to 1 Corinthians 15 and keep going and preach through the whole chapter, that until he comes is the essence of chapter 15. He brings them back to this reality of the, of the body and the blood of Christ given for us. But then he goes on in chapter 15, after talking about the resurrection, to say, but one day the dead in Christ shall rise. I mean, he even taunts death with a song. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, where sin is your victory? He, he, he taunts it in chapter 15. And that's why we as a church need to return again and again and again and again to the gospel and to the elements 
that point us to the gospel. But maybe you're here today and for the first time, this is where your orientation has gone from darkness to light. I mean, your eyes for the very first time are being opened. Maybe you're watching online and for the very first time, I mean, your eyes are just being opened to the simplicity but the power of the gospel. That God is opening your eyes. It's not me. It is God in his grace, almost putting like a, a salve on your eyes. And all of a sudden you're seeing for the very first time the truth of the gospel. I want to encourage you to simply pray where you are in your seat, maybe at home right now. A prayer like this. When I was 16, I prayed a prayer when my eyes had been opened that I was a sinner in need of grace. And I just prayed a prayer like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need you to save me. And I understand that you died on the cross for me. And so I ask you to take away my sin and to save me. And as best as I know how, I give you my life, and I want you to be the king of my life. I was alone by myself in the woods of Mississippi and it wasn't like the trees started blowing over, the wind picked up, but I am telling you new life came in this body. And I've never been the same. And what I prayed in that day was just a prayer from a sinner saying, God, save me and trusting in the gospel. As God's word says, he delights to save and so I encourage you, if you're here today and you've never prayed a prayer like that, really acknowledging your sinfulness and asking Jesus for, your, for forgiveness and giving your life to him, that right now would be the moment that you do that. Father, I pray that in this moment of stillness, that each person, the person who maybe has been attending this church for many years and maybe the person that this was their first Sunday to be here, for the person that's sitting on a couch or in a recliner right now. I pray, God, that in your grace, you would help them to see, one, either that they belong to you and that their grip on the gospel would be even tighter today because of your word, or that you would show them that you are gripping them with the gospel. And that once in your hand, they can never be snatched from there. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, that it is your plan that we be a people so gripped by the gospel that we circulate every decision, every thought, every action through the gospel. So, Lord, please, orient us today to the goodness of your grace as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite for you to stand, and we're going to respond this morning in song, just for you to be able to worship God because of the gospel. But if you're here today and you need prayer, I want to invite you to come. I want to be able to pray for you. If you prayed this morning for the very first time trusting Jesus, I want to invite you to come. I want to pray for you. But you respond now in worship.